The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the B-Side for episode 1650 of our national conversation about conversations about race. Thanks, Obama. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author of How to Be Black, here with the OG About Race crew, Tanner Colby, author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black. What's up? Not much. How are you, sir? I am good. Happy to be alive after a car accident where no one was seriously injured. Thank you for asking. Oh, I'm sorry to laugh about No, no. And, and speaking of introductions, uh, on the nice laughter cue off of my car accident, joining us, author of Bird of Paradise, How uh, I Became Latina, Raquel Cepeda herself. Welcome back, Raquel. Oh, my God. I'm so happy to see you. Happy to see you, too. Okay. And almost happy new year to oh, you. Oh, and I like to also say uh, thank you to Obama. Thank you. Thank you, Obama. Michelle. Yes. Thank all, you all for making him look plural, good. All the Obamas. Yes. Thank you, thank all you the Obamas. All. So listen, thank up, you, y'all. Valerie Plame. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go. There. <laughs> I don't think the Obamas had anything to do with it. You I think mean, it was all Valerie Plame? Oh, yeah. That's a throwback. <laughs> that's a throwback name, man. Thank you so much for that. Um, Anna Holmes is out this week, so uh, as she sits on a plane, the show must go on, and so must the B side. So in our last episode, Anna, Rebecca Carroll, and Jamal Bowie, they talked about the legacy of President Obama as his presidency winds down. Here's our producer, Mr. A.C. Valdez, with some of what you all had to say about that and more. Hit it, A.C. Thank you, Baratunde. All right, so I'm going to get straight to this letter from Stephen. And this is a comment that I saw a couple of places, or similar kind of comments. We talked a bit about the frustrations people had with the Obama administration in the last conversation. And uh, he says, I really enjoyed your latest episode and was interested to hear everyone's thoughts on the pros and cons of Obama's lasting legacy. I would love to hear the group's thoughts, though, on his mixed record on immigration and personally advocate for the point that setting DACA and DAPA aside, he leaves behind a devastating record on deportation. I love Barack Obama. I have many policy differences with what he accomplished, the size of the stimulus, some disappointments around the Affordable Care Act, an education agenda that was arguably worse than Bush's, the security state, whatever internal White House shit show left people trapped in Guantanamo forever as Obama leaves office. There are finance execs on the streets now who should be in prison for years. I have a list of serious quibbles. But I still love Obama. He brought us back from the brink of a depression. He resurrected civil rights as a federal commitment. He demonstrated with the Affordable Care Act a willingness to depart from Clintonism and to embrace wealth redistribution, which disproportionately benefited people of color. This is why his immigration policy has been such a slap in the face. Obama's administration has deported almost 3 million people. Living in Los Angeles, the impact of this has been palpable. You can feel its impact everywhere you go. In this one area, Obama is not a light in the dark, but a warning of what is to come with Trump. I doubt that Trump will deport more people than Obama before the business community revolts, and I hope I'm right. So that is a comment from Stephen. I'm not expert enough on the ins and outs of immigration mm-hmm. policy to, to say what should or shouldn't have been done differently. I do know that Obama was willing to tackle comprehensive immigration reform, but Congress wouldn't do anything uh, to help with that or assist with that in any way. So what actions Obama took with deportation uh, versus uh, the DREAM Act and what the proper balance should be, should have been, I I couldn't say. You guys? I don't, I'm not well enough, enough first either, and um, I'm not from L.A., but I know people, friends of mine in L.A., have seen and felt the impact of his horrible immigration policies um, realized more than I have. I really haven't um, in New York City. I'm sure that it's happening here, too, but um, I mean, 
I think it's going to get worse. I mean, he says that Trump is going to, it's not going to be as bad about, you know, when Trump gets into, into office. Is that what he's saying? No, he said he thought it was going to get worse, I think. He said it's okay. I doubt that yeah. Trump will deport more people than Obama before the business community revolts, and I hope I'm right. Oh, okay. No, so, I don't think that's. I mean, what I've heard people say is like it's unrealistic to expect that we have the ability to deport more people than Obama has or his administration has. But I think, and you know, to this point, we got some tweets from Ernesto on Twitter at EAXLR. He said he was surprised the panel spent so much time on what the president can't slash isn't able to do rather than say won't or decides not to. And I think that maybe gets at what Tanner is talking about in terms of where Obama's hands have or have not been tied. Well, I could tell you that my, my biggest disappointment when, in Obama, I, I think this year is his ineffectiveness about the way he's handling Standing Rock. That was, that's been terrible. He hasn't done enough to, um, you know, to stop that pipeline from being built. And now with, you know, with Trump, I think it's going to happen. I think they're going to, it's just going to get worse. You know, I'm trying to find a way to be optimistic because I've been, I actually have been optimistic lately, but when I'm thinking about the stuff I don't like about Obama, him not um, forgiving, or what is that when you commute somebody's sentence? Pardoning? Pardoning. That's the word. Okay. So I really think he should have pardoned Leonard Peltier. I think he should have done more for Standing Rock. And I'm afraid for DACA students. I, uh, I've been trying while the rest of the group has been talking to find more information so I can sound smarter on this topic yeah, than good I luck. am. Yeah, nice try. Uh, my Google skills are pretty A+, plus, but not good enough in this case. So here, here's what my thoughts are. Yes, the president has overseen the deportation of like 20-something more percent than George W. Bush. I have heard, maybe overheard, that there is some deeper analysis which explains that this is not just based on cruelty, or like higher levels of enforcement. It's related to a reclassification in some cases, maybe a new type of influx, especially with all the Central American flood of refugees that we saw during one of his terms. All that said, it's still overall shameful. And I think we're paying for his delayed action on immigration reform. He waited way too long. He didn't have control of Congress. By the time he really tried to do stuff, Republicans were not having it. They were trying to outfight each other and who could be more draconian, more inhumane, more cruel, and uh, there was no political will left in the administration to push forward through it. So I, it was a major lost opportunity in the most charitable case. It was an extension of, of cruelty in the least charitable. And I, I want to thank our listener and community member for bringing that point up because it was uh, notably absent from the Thanks Obama episode, whether you're saying it sincerely or dripping with sarcasm. Here's one question, though. What is a morally acceptable number of deportations? People do, well, people do enter this country without legal access, and some of them can stay, some of them need to go home. What's the, you know, proper level of enforcement? If Obama is is bad and Trump's going to be worse, but we do have to police our borders somehow, that's the question I never hear, is that you hear Trump and the Republicans say, ban all Muslims, Mm -hmm. build a wall, all immigration is horrible except for Melania Trump and Trump's modeling business. But then you have, you know, Hillary Clinton's convention where they're bringing undocumented and illegal immigrants out on the stage and celebrating them, which at some point, and neither of those are a sensible immigration policy. I mean, it's not, but it's not, but neither of it's those. not everybody who comes gets to stay and it's not everybody has to stay out. My question is, what is the appropriate so, law? So here's, so the appropriate law, I think, is a combination of steps. 
And it's an attempt to actually have a compre- That's why it's called comprehensive immigration right. reform. And we haven't had it since Reagan. And, and so what Obama tried to do, he's like, all right, the Republicans want me to get tough on the border. I'm going to get tough on the border. And there's more border security agents than in the history of the country. Right. It turns yeah. out the right doesn't care. Yeah. Because like, they're not actually legitimate in their demands. Like they just want to be in charge. They don't care if you do what they want when you're in charge. Right. So your actions are illegitimate whether they align with their stated goals or not. So I, I think what part of the argument is not that you encourage people to come here without their papers, but that you create a system that, first of all, doesn't actively go into people's homes and rip families apart, especially when you have these mixed families, some with papers, some without. When you take into account the actual contributions that people are making, the taxes they're paying, the jobs they're holding, the community work they're doing, and when you don't actively vilify everybody as a, a criminal. Um, so I think the comprehensive would take into account employer work, would take into account actual legitimate asylum claims, would take into account family relations, how long you've been here, have you been productive, or if you are a quote-unquote bad hombre, or bad person in another language, not just to make it all about Spanish speakers. But that's not what we ever got. That's what the Senate sort of came close to, mm-hmm. and then it fell apart. And so we're having this lopsided argument about doing things that actually have been done, like secure the border, but we haven't taken on the other parts. Like, we're deporting mad people. We have a super secure border relative to history, but we haven't actually said it's safe for you who have been here, that you have a pathway. And that's, and that's one other point that I want to throw in here. People act like when we talk about immigration reform, we're just going to have a blank pardon, to use, to use your language, Raquel. And everybody who did an illegal or technically wrong thing mm-hmm. is going to be encouraged. It's like, no, it's still going to be... It's called a pathway to citizenship. It means eventually you can become a citizen. It sounds like amnesty and like, oh, you did a crime, you don't do the time. It's mad hard to become a citizen of this country. And And no one is talking about flipping a switch so one day, but they are talking about removing the specter of breaking up your family and and adding some stability to your life. So, you know, okay, cool. Now I'm going to work to pay my taxes and do like Obama talked about all this stuff and people act like he never said it. So Raquel, please. Well, I agree with every with everything you said. But as far as immigration goes, I also think that when we have the conversation, it's always brown. And there are people here from, you know, all over the Europe, Eastern, Western, whatever. And I did hear an argument for doing it the right way. And the right way was trying to get students. Mm-hmm. And the students that, you know, can come here as exchange students to give us something are usually, unless they're from India, are not are not brown people, are not Latino people. Also, I've been interviewing a lot of people that are on their way to becoming citizens. And I can't believe, I can't believe because I have the privilege of being born in New York City and of being an American, right? How expensive it is, how they keep on changing the documents, the process. There are organizations, like for example, the Northern Manhattan Coalition for Immigrant Rights, that do the work of helping people fill out the forms because they're so incomprehensible. So you're trying to deter folks from even trying to start... The, and what that costs like what $600 just to do the first part of it. So you have all these things that are actually attracting one set of maybe richer immigrants, like mm-hmm. the ones that are buying up all the buildings here, like you know, from China and, and Rio and France. And then you kind of want to deter the ones that, you know, that you don't like because they're from Mexico or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, so I think that's it's really super racist the way that 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 the structure is being, you know, the conversations being had. And um, my hope is that there be more organizations in the future that will help people become documented because I don't think anybody wants to be here, quote unquote, illegally. I don't think anybody wants that. It's a a risk. Yeah, it's a risk. And it it leads to exploitation, you know, not just the risk of deportation, but 
employers who feel like they have something over you because they'll snitch right. if you don't you know, let them take a percentage of your pay. Right. And I've actually followed a woman um, last week for a project that was in that situation yeah. and she's being exploited. They're nervous. They're always, you know, in fear of everything, in fear of your own shadow. You become isolated. It become it, it, It's a trigger from, you know, mental health, um, uh, you know, obstacles. All these things are being put in place to make people kind of like what Mitt Romney said, make it so bad that you deport yourself. But it's super. I mean, it's let's let's close this one. I on, mean, on Mitt Romney. What's up, AC? I actually I want to pipe in on this one just because my last job before coming to you all and coming to Panoply was working at uh, Latino USA on NPR and talking to immigration advocates or, or people who advocated for undocumented people. To, to get back to Tanner's question of what is the right level, I think the right level is not the question that a lot of immigration advocates are really asking. I think a lot of it has to do with the humanity of the way we handle deportations too. And to some degree, it has to do with the fact that we have detention centers for women and children mm-hmm. in Texas right now. We're keeping these families together in anticipation of being kicked out of the country. And we did that after the, the migration crisis from Honduras and El Salvador. And, you know, numbers numbers aside, like, I think a lot of people would like to live in a country where that kind of detention doesn't happen. AC, actually, I was listening to um, Amy Goodman on, De- on Democracy Now! And I have to look for the episode so I can forward it to Cody so we could put it up on the site. But... Now there's like a surge in suicide attempts by young people, as young as four or five, like children that are living in those detention centers. So some of the mothers, and I can't remember what detention center it was, some of the moms went on a hunger strike um, until Mm. some changes were made. But can you imagine creating in America and North America and the environment where children, four, five, six, seven, are trying to commit suicide and teenagers? I mean, we should be ashamed of ourselves here. Thank, and thank you, AC, for driving home the humanity point. It's something that's come across in the mass incarceration discussion as a reminder. And when we think mass incarceration in America, we tend to focus on black males. There's also a large female population and a very large immigrant population in these ICE detention centers, many of which are privatized, bad oversight, horrible conditions. So whatever the number is, the humane treatment should scale up and down with that number as we figure out just what we want to be in terms of immigration, which has always been up and down in this country. We never had a fully open door policy to begin with. We had Chinese Exclusion Act. We had very, Mm -hmm. nope, until the middle of the 20th century, it was just Europeans. And then certain types of Europeans were, you know, not really looked up to when they got here. So we're always figuring out who we want to let in to try to optimize our economy and our sense of racial purity. And uh, so for those with a, a short view of history, just remember, just know that we've been through this before and we'll continue to go through it with just, you know, higher tech means and a little bit more transparency than in history. All right. So uh, on that note, let's move on to this letter from Lindsay. Letter from Lindsay. I like that. And she says, hi, all. In thinking about your discussion about what you found most disappointing slash frustrating about the Obama administration, I echo the sentiment of looking around the left thinking, where are the adults? And this was uh, line Anna said, kind of towards the end of the last episode. Right now, she says, the most consistent aggressive voice attacking Donald Trump, his appointments, and the lackadaisical response to Russian tampering in our election seems to be from independent conservative Evan McMullen, who uh, ran for president in Utah. His outspoken opposition has obviously gotten under the skin of Trump, who has gone from referring to him as this guy to now McMuffin in his victory rallies. 
And uh, that leads her to her biggest frustration. The Democratic Party and or the left can't get itself together enough to channel the same types of opposition through one strong messenger. If we've learned anything in the last election, it seems to be that hitting scattershot from all angles is ineffective, and we need a targeted opposition message beginning six weeks ago. Every time I see another link to an op-ed, probably by a middle-aged white dude, about identity politics or another post-mortem about days spent in Wisconsin, or how many times Hillary Clinton said the words economic inequality, I want to respond like the man in the viral video just yelling no over a racist protester. Thanks for all you do, Lindsay. (laughs) Oh, Lindsay, that's beautiful. That's a great letter. And, and everybody <laughs> should watch that video. Uh, we'll try to have it available uh, in our site or tweet it out or something. But just search for uh, racist and guys screaming no. It's a, it's a really beautiful thing. Uh, any other comments on, on this topic, my fellow discussants? Well, the idea middle-aged that, white guy, Tanner Colby. Well, yeah. Yeah, am I middle-aged yet? I think. Yeah, you are. Oh, <laughs> no. Damn it! I think so. You got two kids I and a two. job. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the idea that we would have had a unified message, we didn't even expect to lose. So the idea that the opposition would be unified and coherent yeah. and and diamond pointed at this point is is kind of absurd. It's going to take a. I mean, the Democratic Party was shattered into a thousand pieces or a million pieces, largely because it was built around two tentpoles, Obama and the Clintons, and everyone thought it was just going to hand off one or the other. And now one of those is retiring, and the others have been laid waste to. And so, like, there's no center anymore. Yeah. And so we got to and figure out what that is. And part of you know one of the criticisms that's been lobbed at the Clintons is that Hillary was just sort of like you know holding the seat for herself since 2000 almost um and that and i don't know if, if that's accurate i'm not a, uh, an expert enough at democratic party politics to say but that that has inhibited the rise of the evan mcmullins that there should be dozens of evan mcmullins out there on the on the left and they're not there and who, who the obvious success i mean we're still talking about biden elizabeth warren and bernie sanders running in four years which god help us they're all 90 years old um but, but that old. no but she's going to be 70 Two, I think, in no 2020. Oh. But isn't so. isn't Trump like? Is he 70? Is he 72? He's over 70. He's, he's 69 over 70. or about to turn 70, okay. or just turned 70. But anyway, point being is like we sh- we we shouldn't be as old as Trump. You know, yeah. we should never. It's time for the baby boomers to go. <laughs> it's just time for them to go, and we need we need our Evan McMullins. So, and, so Raquel, yeah, what do you but, think of this? Can I, if I might, yeah. focus a question for you? Because there was something in in Lindsay's. That had a, an assumption to it that there's a single voice that we need to channel things through. How do you feel about the need for that focal point versus a focused message? I think that definitely, like I was listening to Bernie Sanders. Yeah. He was speaking somewhere in Philadelphia, I think. Recently. And uh, recently, very okay. recently. And he said things that were very pragmatic, which is we should be, and I don't know why Hillary didn't do this, going to red states, talking to people, getting offline, meeting folks. Hearing them out, mm-hmm. not ignoring, not not being, you know, condescending. I think that the Democratic Party is super, super. They just left. They just left planet Earth. They're like in some ivy tower somewhere, and they forgot about everybody else. Yeah. Made a lot of assumptions. I wish I could remember the book that two books. One of them specifically that um, Errol Lewis recommended mm-hmm. about, and he recommended it because I think it's Brown is the New White. I think that's what it's called. And he said because everything about that book was wrong. 
the assumptions that you make, thinking that you know everything, not getting to know the American people, not going and working at red states, yeah. not going and spending time on the ground. You know, Bernie Sanders said that, you know, for him, he thinks that the future of the, of the Democratic Party, if there is to be one, is really to be grassroots. To go back to understand that people are different, yeah. that everybody's different, to embrace those differences. And I think that Evan McMullen is really good at that, except that he's, I think, a libertarian. Isn't he a libertarian? He's some kind of conservative. I don't know if he's a registered Republican or a registered libertarian. Do you know, Tanner? But, but so far, he's just principled in his criticisms of Donald Trump's yeah. wrongs, which is uh, his main selling point. What he actually believes or how he would govern right. If, if elected, remains more vague. We yeah. need more of that. I mean, don't we need? I think we need more parties. Like I said before, you know, I don't know if the Green Party is a solution. I kind of thought it was, and then I got to know uh, vicariously, you know, uh, the folks that were running that were running for president and not feeling it. Yeah. And some of the moves that are being made are kind of like, huh? Um, so it's really not about the people. I really want to see a, an organization, or even within the Republicans and the Democrats and whoever else, a spectrum. We can't, we can't be all clustered into one group of people. Yeah. Well, to, to Lindsay's point, I don't think we need a single person. I, I actually agree 100% with Tanner that it's going to take a minute yeah. because there was, you can't have an effective opposition if you weren't prepared to oppose because <laughs> you thought you were going to be running things. Right. Uh, it's like, oh, wait, we're passengers? I thought we were going to be driving. Right. Uh, and so we didn't bring passenger stuff with It's kind of like Trump organizing his administration. He didn't expect to yeah, win. So both, you know. both sides have been caught off guard right. by what's happening. And so you're going to have a sloppy presidency and a sloppy opposition for a while. And maybe it'll take a year or so. But there are um, Reverend William Barber, who lit up the stage at the mm-hmm. DNC this summer, head of the Moral Mondays movement out of North Carolina. His is the type of voice. I don't think he needs to be running point, but I think his message can and I think we can have a focused message without a single focused leader, and that being the invocation of morality to oppose. And what Evan McMullen is doing is not a partisan attack; it's a principled opposition. Right. These are wrong. These values do not align with who we say we are. And I think any opposition, you know, I've been disappointed by how hard it's been to find Democratic voices who will even go that far, including to refer to the Thanks Obama episode from our president. You know, I really want, you know, someone on the last podcast said, given all the things that Obama said about Trump and his unfitness and nothing about his fitness changed the night he was elected, you don't become fit just because 80,000 people in Michigan and Wisconsin says, say you are. You have a track record that precedes that one election night and he has not acknowledged, you know, the facts in, in the same way. He's put a lot of faith and he's playing Mr. Nice Guy and I kind of want the niceness to stop. Um, yes. And then, and the last yes. element, there's a great article by Joe Randazzo, who I used to work for at The Onion. He was the editor-in-chief there. And it's called Never Stop Yelling at, uh, at Ivanka Trump. There's a big dust-up about her very choreographed jet blue flight and a man who spoke unkindly toward her and was booted off the plane. And, and Joe's point is also in the similar vein of like, we got to, all of us, not a single leader have to recognize that this is a real fight and we got to put our skin in it and yelling's okay. Like politeness helped get us here because you assume the other side is not going to do something and then they keep doing it. So when are we going to learn that they don't care? Uh, when are we, when are the Senate Democrats going to learn, say no to everything, everything, no Supreme court, no secretary of state, just gum up the works, throw sand in the gears. And I don't think that whether it's individual democratic leaders of the party in general, they're not prepared for that kind of fight. And the Republicans, on the other end, have been fighting that way 
for many, many terms now. And we're, we're a little slow on the left to like come up to that. Idealistically, but, can I ask you, both of y'all a question? Idealistically, do you think that Jill Stein ever had skin in the game? Ever had a moment? Like she I could didn't have, pay like, attention to one thing she said during the entire campaign. I, I, didn't I listened to her folk rap. I it's pretty awful. That wow. She's a folk rapper, yeah. Oh. That's that shouldn't even Wait, be a genre. Folk rap. Folk rap. <laughs> That's when she lost me. That's when yeah. I was like, I just can't. But anyway, you know, like there were. This was an you know, Bernie Sanders became pretty much a beacon of light mm-hmm. in this during this you know election season. So there were there's room for people outside of the box yeah. that live outside of the boxes, yeah. right? So you never thought that Jill Stein, even when you first heard her, you know, speak and come out against talk about mass incarceration and social justice, environmental justice and climate change. and No. I mean, I, I listened. You know, I saw some of her positions. I definitely agree with her and the uh, Green Party on some stances. I don't think they're prepared to govern. I think they had a shot of actually winning. And so it's like intellectually one thing to entertain those positions. It's another to sh- use my energy to encourage people to vote for that person, which I thought would be very counterproductive in a likely close election. So not a realistic option to actually cast a vote for president or encourage others to do so. And you never listened to her? No, because I was, was she was not on my radar. No. <laughs> I just didn't pay attention because I just thought, this is silly. What were you about to say on the... Well, I just, to the... to the Yeah, you you can't continue to bring a knife to a gunfight the way that the mm-hmm. Democrats have done. Mm-hmm. But They bring in, like, paper mm-hmm. to right. a nuke fight. But you, you also <laughs> necessarily, and I don't know... It, We'll see how and if it plays out. I don't know if you can counter nihilism with nihilism. Mm-hmm. Right. Because Mitch McConnell has just proven he cares about nothing. He is, he's evil. I think Paul Ryan is craven. Yeah. Mitch McConnell is evil mm-hmm. because he just said, I'm not going to run the government until I get what I want. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to sit here and nothing in Washington will happen until we burn this fucker down. Yeah. And, you know, if we then take that same tack, no judges will ever be appointed ever anywhere, ever, you know, and can you, do you contribute further to the erosion of democratic norms if you fight nihilism with nihilism? Or is there a way to bring a gun to a gunfight that also then keeps principles and norms in place? Yeah, I think you can do both. I think it's very hard. I think one level at which we can operate is at a local level to do that because the Republicans weren't just saying no at the federal level. They were also taking over every state legislature, redrawing district boundary lines, ensuring that they could do stunts like they did in North Carolina um, by literally diluting the power of of a Democratic governor the day or week after he was elected. So I don't, the the good person in me doesn't want to encourage, you know, fight negative with more negative. The pragmatist in me and the, the vengeful part of me says, fuck these guys. And if you really want to play like this, we can go. We can fucking do this. We can take this outside. If you want a street fight, I agree. <laughs> like, let's scrap, you know, like put them up or shut up. So I, I don't, I think there is a weight to that level of fight. I'm sure there is a better way to do that fight. And I think there's a longer term, deeper grassroots, to use your term, Raquel, way that builds something. I think opposition alone is empty. And the Republicans have opposed a lot. They don't stand for much. There's some selfishness at the core, but that is a very hard thing to inspire masses of people. And I think in in a real victory, you got to have an inspirational imagination and vision. Like you got to be building towards something. And the Democratic Party doesn't just need opposition. It needs creativity again. It needs to like wrap itself around the flag again and inside that flag and find itself again. And that's going to come from a, a local grassroots. It's not going to come hoping Bernie gives a great speech. 
And it's like, oh, yeah, that's our guy again. Phew, all we have to do is vote for, Bo- right, for Bernie. Right. That will not solve it. So thank you, Tanner, for checking my, my nihilism. Right. Um, but I think as a reminder to myself, especially, the opposite of that takes time. And in the meantime, being mismatched in the fight, I just don't want to see Democrats relying on good idea principles alone. Let's give, give Trump a chance is not the right response either. And just because the Republicans blocked, we shouldn't block. I think that's naive and it's too dangerous. The stakes are too high because he's so not normal. But I can see that happening. <laughs> Maybe. But I, in you know, the effort to try to get along, give him a chance. But if, if we see the grassroots, you know, the level of con. So here's a, here's a real example. I, w- I, I visited three Midwestern states over the holidays. I was like doing the, the campaigning that Hillary didn't. And so I was, <laughs> I was in Illinois. I was in Wisconsin. I was in Michigan. And when I was in Illinois, I met uh, with a woman who was a, a part of a local chapter of the Pantsuit Nation, the infamous Facebook group that really backed Hillary. And they've stayed active, not just to promote a book and feel good online, but to engage in local politics. And they did uh, email letter uh, parties, phone banking parties, and they got a state law passed. And the reason that the legislator said they got it passed, like I heard from a lot of moms in Elmhurst, Illinois. These were the moms. They did it. And it didn't wait. It wasn't because Elizabeth Warren tweeted something. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't because, you know, some other senator obstructed or periscope from the floor. It's because they took it into their own hands. And that's a sort of a positive version. They were advocating for a law they wanted to see passed. They affected power where they could reach it and touch it, which was a state legislator. And more stuff like that uh, has got to happen. We have to distribute this a bit more. Mm-hmm. We probably spent a lot of time on Lindsay's letter. Thank you, Lindsay, for inspiring. That was us. a lovely memoir. <laughs> Anything else, AC? <laughs> um, well, you guys inadvertently kind of covered the next letter I was going to Yeah, we uh, did. Read. Yeah. So, Lindsay uh, set us up. Kyle, I apologize for not getting to you. Um, Where's Kyle from? Kyle is from Minnesota oh. and agreed a lot about the uh, need for clear engagement on the ground. So Great. I'm going to play this voice memo that we got. Hey guys, this is Mark in Pennsylvania, and this is a question for Tanner, but hopefully you all will have uh, thoughts about it as well. How much racism should we tolerate in friends and family now that people are proud to call themselves deplorable and more emboldened? Sexism is always out there and things like that, but if you're white in America now, you will be exposed to racism fairly often. So how much should we tolerate? I'm for a zero tolerance policy myself, but I'm curious what Tanner thinks and what everybody else thinks, you know, with books like Hillbilly Elegy and some of these Trump uh, voter sympathy articles that are so widespread right now. Thanks. I really don't have an answer to that question. I have uh, a suggestion. Why not? Because I talked to my mom after the election and nothing to do with race, just more Republican politics. Just mad at my dad for for having voted for Trump. And she said, Tanner, I've been having this argument with your father for 20 years. You're not going to win it over Thanksgiving. Just shut up and sit down and eat the turkey. And what are you going to do? What what, what are you going to do over Thanksgiving? What are you going to fix over Thanksgiving? Yeah. Having it out at the, at the Thanksgiving table is, is a horrible idea. You have to identify the people in your family who can be saved. Like... like Trying to fix someone's racism or trying to talk uh, Republicans and Trump voters at this point, after they've been programmed by by Fox News for 20 years, trying to talk to them is like trying to deprogram a cult member in many ways. You can't. You have to you have to like 
identify the weaker ones mm-hmm. on the edge of the herd that you can pick off and pick them off. But just to like start an argument at the Thanksgiving table, you have to identify people who are, who are susceptible to being uh, educated and educate them. But to go full frontal at, uh, at someone, like racism in many ways, there's a debate of whether you should analogize racism to a disease because of what that means about the responsibility of the person who holds those views. But confronting someone who's racist is like confronting someone who's an alcoholic or confronting someone with bipolar disorder in the sense that their view of reality does not frame with actual reality. And so when you confront them with reality, they reject you. Right. Right. Straight, straight out. That's why no one, no one recovers from alcoholism until they choose to hit bottom or they hit bottom and choose to do it for themselves. Right. And so they have to recognize the disconnect with reality on their own before they can be, uh, you can give them the red pill and you can pull them out of the, 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 the matrix or whatever. You can only save people who want to be saved, I guess would be the the shorter version of it. I wouldn't, I agree with you, except that I wouldn't lump in bipolar disorder, mental health issues into that, into that conversation. But I was reading something that the Southern Poverty Law Center had uh, published back in January 2015. It's just like a little guide um, speaking up, you know, responding to everyday bigotry. Mm-hmm. And some of it is like, you know, from your parents, from your siblings, like, you know, confronting it. And to me, to me, it's a little passive. Because some of it says, you know, like uh, if your if your brother or sister says something, you know, racist, you confront them right there and then and say, you know, what you're saying is hurting me. I'm very offended. I can't believe we grew up in a family like this. I thought we were, you know, more open. People that are already thinking that way are not. They don't care. Yeah. So I don't know if if you know if this is going to be useful, but who knows? Maybe it is. I mean, it's it's. I love the work that the um, SPL Center does. So maybe it's worth it. Maybe it'll work for your family, Kyle. Good luck. Good, Good luck, luck with there, that, Kyle. Yeah. Um, and yeah, thank you for speaking for all white people there, Tanner. I knew it. That's why I'm here. <laughs> I, you know, I, I had a, a, one of my holiday meals was with a family that I was told voted for Trump, but not to bring it up. And it's not my family, so I didn't do it. I was, I was, a, I was a guest with some other folks. But then I found myself in another Midwestern state in a one-on-one conversation with a white male Trump voter who I didn't expect would have been. And instead of like jumping in his face, I just asked a lot of questions and I just figured out what his particular thing was. It wasn't a race thing. I mean, I think like a lot of Trump voters, it wasn't because of the racism. It was like, I don't really care that much about the race thing or I don't believe what I'm seeing. The media is making a sensational point. This person was really obsessed with the size of the debt and had watched a lot of YouTube videos, which had programmed him to be, to care about that. And it was like, I just care about the size of government. And I think Hillary is going to blow up the size of the government. And when I confronted this person lightly with, you know, Donald Trump's uniqueness and his statements and what it said about this man's female partner and child, he actually felt shame. And because he just hadn't thought about it that way. And everyone he's ever told that he voted for Trump just called him a racist and a big and didn't want to hear anything else from him. So he doesn't bring it up anymore. It's like his secret, secret ballot, which is kind of supposed to be. Uh, so he was really grateful for a chance to just have a conversation with a black person who talks a lot about race who wasn't all up in his face about it. And he, to me, is someone who could be picked off. Right. Because he's, so there are different categories. I mean, you have the people who are totally deep in and they believe in the pedophilia ring out of a pizza shop in D.C. Right. And yeah. and they think that, you know, Hillary murdered an FBI agent and they think that black people kill white people at a hundred times the rate because of some weird fake study Donald Trump linked to in a tweet <laughs> 10 months ago. 
those right. folks. You just got to outvote them. You know, you got to outorganize them. You're not necessarily going to face-to-face change them. But right. there's at the margin enough that can be changed. So, so the long answer, super long answer to you, Kyle, it depends on the type of person you're dealing with. Right. If you're dealing with a proud racist, move along. <laughs> it's very unlikely you're going to change their mind over a meal, maybe over a lifetime. Maybe it takes a reformed racist to talk to them in the same way that it takes reformed gang members to engage with current gang members um, and, and reformed uh, you know, militants to deal with militants and reformed terrorists to deal with terrorists. There has to be someone in their world, from their world, that they didn't speak their language. And that's, that may not be you, Kyle. You may just come across as uh, a know-it-all and an easily dismissed person. Uh, thank you, AC, for bringing us the voice of Kyle. Did you did you uh, guys see? I'm not um, sure that second guy was named Kyle. Oh, you just, oh, you, just you said up, Kyle. Is it because he's white? You just made up. You said no, he's Kyle probably was, a Kyle. Kyle was the last the letter before. Okay, I thought you said uh, Kyle. <laughs> well, now we got Kyle all yeah. over this conversation. Right. I can cut. I can no, cut no, 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 no. It's, it's more fun if you leave it, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Uh, an apology. That last voicemail was. We're not sorry, Kyle. Kyle. <laughs> that was the first letter we heard to the voicemail author. Sorry about that. Did you guys see um, Van Jones' special? Yeah, The Messy Truth. The Messy Truth. Did you see it, Tanner? No. They found a family who voted for Obama twice, Mm -hmm. right? And then voted for Trump. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that conversation because, you know, I could see how scared, especially the dad was, right, on on stage when they, you know, when they left their hometown and came to the, you know, live audience. Oh, you're talking about his town hall. No, I didn't. I saw the Facebook series, the messy truth. The messy truth is what it is, right? That was, it does the technical details. I didn't see the town hall. Okay. So anyway, like he looked like he was, you know, afraid or whatever, but I really enjoyed that conversation. And I had a similar one with another guy who I, you know, white guy from Jersey, Joyzy, who I, I don't, I didn't find him to, I didn't feel his racism, Mm -hmm. but he's just in the same kind of economic straight. That this family found themselves yeah. in and kind of just, I don't think he voted for Obama in any of the elections either because he's like a, you know, a, a plumber, Jersey boy, mm-hmm. not plumber, sorry, a um, painter, okay. a Jersey boy. And, you know, I don't, I just, I mean, a really funny guy, but at the same time feels like America, like the government, like, you know, the, his society, his country has turned their back on him. Yeah. And I felt the same kind of anguish in this family. Yeah. No, that's, that. and I think for, for list, that's good news. It means that, first of all, like what tipped the scale was a very small segment of the population and one that can swing a different way the next time. Like Obama didn't have to win. He won because enough people were fed up with Bush and, and inspired that they kind of got him Indiana and some of these other states. Trump didn't have to win. It was very close. And there's enough, you know, if he, if, if he doesn't deliver, which he probably won't. Mm-hmm. then this doesn't have to be guaranteed or last as long as like a hundred years of, of orange solitude. <laughs> you said orange solitude. <laughs> and, and, and on that note. Yeah. And on, on that, that note. note. <laughs> All right. Thank you, dear listeners, for weighing in. If you want to give us a call and be right here with us on this B-side, whether your name is Kyle or not, dial the following into your pocket computer, 612-888-RACE. Again, that's 612 612- 888-RACE. Of course, if you feel like writing, you can still email us or send a voice memo to showaboutrace at gmail.com. Hang in there. The main episode is dropping soon. That was a meaty B-side after all. Mm. Meaty. Meaty. (laughs) 